Well, I would invite you to, to take your Bibles and open up to, to John chapter 7. That's where we're going to be uh, resuming our, our study in John's Gospel this morning. And uh, as you're, you're turning there, one of the most uh, important skills that any youth pastor can have uh, is the ability to play ping pong well. And uh, over my years of youth ministry, I, I've played uh, quite a bit of ping pong. Uh, and eventually, I started to, to play uh, the students left-handed rather than with my, my dominant hand. Uh, and there were, there were some students who would begin to give me a challenge uh, over time. Uh, and uh, when, they, when they started to, to do that, they would be so excited because they're like, oh, I'm going to beat Thomas. And uh, at that point in time, I got to use uh, a line from one of my favorite movies, uh, The Princess Bride. There's, uh, I would say, there's, there's something I must tell you. And to, I am not left-handed, uh, and at that point, uh, I would uh, switch to my, my dominant hand, and the game would uh, shortly be over, uh, and uh, no, no student has yet to say, well, I am not left-handed either. Uh, that would be uh, a scary uh, and, and sobering moment, uh, probably put an end to my, my ping-pong career in youth ministry, but uh, there's another line from that same movie, even from uh, that same dueling scene. Uh, a little bit later, where uh, the Spaniard Inigo Montoya, uh, speaking with the, the masked man who's dressed in black, uh, and after the masked man is, is besting him in, in the swordplay, uh, Inigo says, who are you? Uh, and the masked man says, well, no one of consequence. And then Inigo says, oh, I must know. And, and the masked man says, well, prepare for disappointment. Uh, and Inigo says, Okay, and he just kind of shrugs and they resume their fight. Uh, but uh, those who are reading uh, the book or, or watching the movie are kind of left in the dark for a little bit uh, about this identity of the masked man. Uh, but I am so glad and so thankful uh, that you and I as uh, readers of Scripture uh, are not left in the dark regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. That we are clearly given information about who he is throughout uh, the, the whole New Testament and, and most of the Old Testament. But just because we have all of this information at our fingertips doesn't necessarily mean that people don't have questions about who Jesus is. Uh, indeed, most people have questions about Jesus. Uh, again, this is, a, this is a wonderful time of year to be able to address some of their questions uh, and to, to answer uh, as best as we can. And last week as we were looking in, uh, in John chapter 7, we looked at the first 10 verses uh, of that chapter. Uh, and we saw this interaction between Jesus and his half-brothers uh, and uh, as they were preparing uh, to go up to Jerusalem for uh, the Jewish Feast uh, of Tabernacles. Now this morning, what, what I would like to do is just kind of focus in on verses 11 through 13 here in John chapter 7, but I want to begin reading uh, in verse 1 just as a little bit of a refresher before we, we dive in this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles open, let's begin reading John chapter 7, verse 1. And after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. 
And while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. What we see here uh, is that the people in Jerusalem at the feast had, had different thoughts and opinions about who Jesus is. There was an uncertainty about whether or not he was a, a good man or a deceiver. Right? And, and that's, a, that's a broad spectrum. Right? Now, if he's a good man, I'm going to respond to him in one way. And if he is a deceiver, I'm going to respond to him in a completely different way. So there was much muttering, as it says, about Jesus and who he could potentially be. Uh, and this question concerning the identity of Jesus, uh, that was the, the chief topic of discussion at this feast in Jerusalem. And while that question may not necessarily be uh, on everyone's hearts and minds in our own society, uh, th- that question has not diminished in importance. That question of who is Jesus. That there is no more important question uh, that we have to answer in all life. There, there has never been a more important question than that throughout all of human history. And who is Jesus? That question is the question that ultimately every single one of us is going to be judged by. Who do we say that Jesus is? And the Apostle John, in fact, is writing this gospel that we are studying. If you, if you turn back with me to John chapter 20, he tells us why he is writing this gospel, why he took the time and the energy to write a biography of Jesus. What we see in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says this, Now, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Apostle John is writing with a purpose. He's writing with an agenda, and he tells us what it is. I want to introduce you to Jesus, the Son of God, who died to save you. If we believe in him, we can be rescued, reconciled, and redeemed. That we can be brought into a peaceful relationship, indeed adopted into the family of God, the God that we have rebelled against. That is the purpose of the Apostle John in this book. He answers that question, who is Jesus? And, uh, and indeed, the, the Bible answers that question so well. Uh, but, but I want to trace that question uh, for a bit this morning. Uh, and uh, what I'm going to uh, give to you this morning, I would say three statements about that question uh, and the importance of it. Uh, and the first statement that I'll, I'll give to you uh, is directly from uh, this passage, verses 11 through 13, that this question, who is Jesus, was the quiet debate at the feast. Uh, and as we, as we just read, uh, at this feast, the Jewish leaders were, were looking and were seeking for Jesus because they wanted to kill him. We saw back in verse 1 of this chapter uh, that the reason Jesus wasn't coming down to Judea, the reason he wasn't coming down to the south close to Jerusalem is because the Jewish leaders were out to to kill him. And we talked about this last week, but uh, where we are right now in John's gospel is within six months uh, of Jesus's uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, and but when he finally enters publicly into Jerusalem, he's going to be killed, murdered within the week. So when his brothers come and say, hey, you need to go up publicly. If you're going to be a celebrity, you've got to do celebrity things. Okay, if you're going to be well-known, you have to go up with the, the big caravan uh, of Jewish travelers going from Galilee down to Jerusalem for the feast. You've got to make yourself known. But Jesus says, no, this isn't the time. 
for me to go up publicly. So Jesus goes up privately. Uh, and, and he's going to be there at the feast, but we haven't even seen him there at the feast yet. That's going to come next week when we begin looking at verse 14, where it says about the middle of the feast, Jesus is going to reveal himself. He's going to be teaching in the temple. But, but right now we see what is taking place at the feast, right? And when it says that there is much muttering about Jesus, uh, the idea there is that there is a, a quiet and subdued debate among the people about who Jesus is. The, the, the whole city is abuzz because of everything that Jesus has been doing. Uh, all of uh, Israel uh, and that whole portion of the Roman Empire would have known who Jesus was and what he had been doing. That's why he doesn't show himself publicly at this feast initially. And so there's this quiet debate taking place at the feast, but we also talked about this last week, but the people are so afraid of the Jews, of the Jewish leaders, that no one is speaking about it openly. Because, again, as we looked at last week and as we'll see uh, in the future, uh, the Jews were, were threatening to, to kick anybody who, who believed in Jesus. They were threatening to kick him out of the synagogue, which would, in essence, be kind of excommunicating you out of the, the Jewish culture uh, and life. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't continue to identify as a Jew. And what's interesting is that of the two options mentioned here at the feast of where people were in terms of answering the question, who is Jesus? They were saying, hey, he's a good man. And others were saying he's a deceiver. Only one of those options is logically consistent or, or logically possible. The other one is logically impossible. Which one is impossible? Well, it is impossible for Jesus to only be a good man. Because he has claimed to be God. And as soon as you make that claim, uh, our, our options are limited concerning how to interpret that. As soon as anyone claims to be God, uh, we, we need to interpret them differently. Back in John chapter 5, the Jews wanted to, to stone Jesus. They, they wanted to, to kill him all the more. It says in chapter 5, verse 18, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was making himself equal to God. He said the same thing in John chapter 6. He's going to say it later on in John chapter 8. Going to be constantly revealing himself to the Jewish leaders and saying, Hey, I am the Son of God. How are you going to respond? And the Jews are always seeking to, to kill him. But because Jesus made these claims about being God, it, it immediately limited the possible interpretations of him as a person. If he claims to be God, it's logically impossible for him to just be a good man. And this has been stated in a memorable way by, by C.S. Lewis, who says that Jesus is either uh, a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. And he, the, the logic of this argument is, is this, that if, if Jesus claimed to be God, he either knew that he was lying about that, or he, knew, or he thought he was God, and he really wasn't. Uh, and if Jesus is claiming to be God, and he knew he wasn't God, that would make him a deceiver. A liar, right? And if he thinks he's God and he's really not, that makes him a lunatic. It makes him a madman worthy of the insane asylum. Think about what would you do if someone came up to you uh, on the street and said, I'm God, or how do you typically respond? Uh, how would you respond to that? You'd say, okay, stay right here. Nothing sharp, okay? Uh, and let me, let me call for help. So we immediately have to understand that with these first two options, the implications abound. And, and if Jesus is wrong about who he is, then we shouldn't listen to him about anything. Right? Uh, the, the theologian John Stott has said it in this way. Says, we cannot any longer regard Jesus as simply a great teacher if he was so grievously mistaken in one of the chief subjects of his teaching, namely himself. Right? If Jesus doesn't know who he is, we shouldn't be following him. If he's wrong about that, well, we can completely disregard everything that he says. 
But, but on the other hand, if Jesus is not a liar and if he's not a lunatic, the only other option since he has claimed to be God is that he is who he says he is. That he really is the Lord. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. Right, just that he was a good man is not an option. And yet, what, it, what is amazing is that even though uh, the only logically co- consistent ways of viewing Christ is that he's either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord, most people think of Jesus uh, in the, the two categories presented here in John chapter 7, right? That, that he's a good moral teacher or he's a deceiver. Or I guess there's a, a third realm of kind of the, the grayness of the middle where I think most people uh, like to land. Uh, of I don't I don't know where or who Jesus is. Uh, I'm going to to try and assume a position of neutrality concerning uh, this question of who is Jesus. But that leads to to our second statement regarding this question: Who is Jesus? He, he that question was the quiet debate at the feast. Uh, but then secondly. Uh, I would say this, that question, who is Jesus, is also the inescapable question for every individual. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, when it comes to this particular topic, every single one of us has to make a decision. We have to have an answer for this. And there is no neutral position. If you turn back in John's Gospel uh, to John chapter 3, this is exactly what we what we have seen clearly proclaimed about Jesus. You are more than likely very familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16. right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And then verse 18 removes all of the neutral ground about our response towards Christ. It says this, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay, so there's, there is no neutral. Uh, our, our default position in relationship to to Christ is we, we reject Him. We run from Him. We are all sinners separated from a holy God by our sin. Uh, and so our default neutral position is not that we have accepted Christ, but that we have rejected Him. Uh, and so no decision is a decision. And again, at some point, we all have to, to answer this question about who Jesus is. Hebrews nine twenty seven says this, and as just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There is coming a time when we will all have to stand before Jesus and answer who He is. But again, many of us seek to put off answering this question, or even thinking about this question. It's a sobering question, right? We don't like to, to contemplate it. And some people attend church all of their lives without actually really thinking deeply about this question. And others hear the gospel in some capacity, and they understand it, but then they procrastinate or avoid making a decision. And the gospel message, namely, is the truth of Scripture about who Jesus is and about who we are. Scripture says that we are all sinners who have rebelled against the God who has created us, a holy God who requires perfection. And our sin uh, now is going to lead us not to his blessing, but to his judgment. 
But God, in his mercy, as we see here in John 3.16, out of his love for us as sinners, what has he done? He sent his son to live a perfect life and to die for us. That's what we are celebrating at Christmas, right? We are celebrating the coming of the promised one, the coming of the son who will live and die for us. That, That is the message of the gospel. And Jesus lived a perfect life and then died a sacrificial death. And now God is calling all people everywhere, each and every one of us, to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ, to turn from our own wisdom, our own uh, ability, our own strength when it comes to how to live and our own understanding of what comes after this life. God is calling us to live uh, in submission to Christ. As Paul was preaching uh, to uh, the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he says this, it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We know that, that Christ is uh, the certified judge uh, who will uh, be the final and ultimate judge because God raised him from the dead. But God is commanding all people everywhere to repent and believe in Christ. And choosing not to make a decision in and of itself is a decision. When, uh, when I was a young man in, in college, uh, I lived uh, on a, uh, a street that had uh, street sweeping uh, every Monday morning uh, between uh, 8 a.m. and noon. And that meant, if you've lived in a Uh, part of the country that had street sweeping uh, on residential streets. That means you can't park on the street uh, during that time. And if your car is parked on the street during that no parking time, you get this lovely little envelope underneath your windshield wiper, uh, a parking ticket. Uh, And because I I used to work uh, Sunday nights, and and usually when I would get home, it would be late uh, at night, and most of the parking spaces uh, would be taken. And so I would have to take whatever I could get. Wherever there was a spot, I would, I would park. But you know what I regularly forgot to look at uh, is the, the street signs uh, for sweeping. And so uh, in the, the, the year's time that I was uh, staying uh, at that location, uh, I got uh, a number of parking tickets. Uh, and in my, in my infinite 19-year-old wisdom, uh, I decided maybe I just won't pay him, Right? What, what could go wrong? What's the worst they could do? Uh, well, and then I, I went to the DMV to register my car, and I found out they had kept track of all of those unpaid parking tickets. Uh, they knew about each and every one of them. And this amazing thing, if you don't pay the parking ticket initially, the fines keep increasing. Like That's kind of a bummer. Uh, but I, I learned that the hard way. Avoiding those uh, parking tickets didn't make them disappear. Right? Sort of like that, that bill that you have. If I, if I just leave it unopened on my desk, I don't have to pay that, right? And, and that works for a time. That you can avoid a really big decision. You can procrastinate. But there are certain things in life that just avoiding them does not make them disappear. Uh, and just putting them off actually just means that there's going to be a greater consequence when that bill comes due. And that's how it is with this decision about Christ. Again, we have all made a decision whether we realize it or not. And so we really have to count the cost in evaluating what does it mean to answer this question, who is Jesus, and how am I going to answer it? If you you turn with me to to Luke chapter 14, Jesus illustrated this in a profound way. He he illustrated the, the importance of this question and the urgency of this question. In Luke, Luke chapter 14, in, in verse 25, I know the, the ESV has a, the heading, The Cost of Discipleship. And this is what it says. Now the great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. 
he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's a high cost, right? But then Jesus illustrates this in in two ways. Verses 28 through 30, he makes the point that it is going to cost you to follow Christ. That if you are going to decide, I want to, to be his disciple, I'm going to follow after him, it's going to cost you dearly. And he gives this, this picture. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus is saying, hey, understand what discipleship means. Understand the cost associated with it. And then if you're really going to be his disciple, you need to count that cost before you commit. Otherwise, you'll abandon it halfway and everyone will look and see that you lacked that commitment. But then, on the other hand, Jesus gives another illustration. Kind of the flip side to that coin. It's, it's a costly decision to say that you are going to follow Christ. But it is also a costly decision if you don't make a decision. And this is how he illustrates this. In verses 31 and following, he says, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This second illustration is, is Jesus saying there's a cost to not following him. Think of it this way. If you are that king with 10,000 and that other king is coming with 20,000, you're like, okay, this doesn't look good. I'm outnumbered two to one. So what are, what are his options? Well, he can, he can stand and fight and, and probably lose, or he can, he can send for peace. He can send an ambassador, a delegation, and say, what are your terms? Can we, can we work this out? without fighting but that there's a small window of time for that king to act right the king can't just say well i'll i'll eventually get to it maybe no that there is an urgency to that decision if he does not act it will cost him again that that is the the same reality with our response to this question of who is jesus well we can't just save it for later can't just put it in the, the, the glove box of our car, push it to the, the bottom of that stack of papers on our desk. This is the inescapable question that we all must answer. Who is Jesus? And, and the claims that he makes, again, because he has said, I am God, because he has made that claim, it means we have to think about what he is saying. We can't just push it aside. We can't just dismiss it and say, well, it really doesn't matter. No, there is nothing that matters more. There's nothing more worthy of your thoughts, your time, your energy, your attention, your contemplation than answering this question. We cannot simply dismiss Jesus as being unimportant. But Again, you might be here this morning wrestling with this question of how do, how do I answer this? Who is Jesus? If you're wrestling with that question, that's a good thing. But you may have additional concern. You may, you may ask another follow-up question. Well, how do I know that Jesus is God, that he is who he says he is? That leads to my third statement about this question of who is Jesus. And I'll put it this way. We'll spend a good amount of time here that who is Jesus is answered clearly in the Bible. And I would kind of summarize this, and this is not going to be a, uh, a complete explanation of who Jesus is, but here's a concise statement. That Jesus is the Son of God who came to the earth as a man to live and die for sinners. And as, as I speak about or give that brief explanation it's not controversial 
to say that Jesus was a man. Right? No one really argues that. There's some heresy in the early church, but we won't get into that. Uh, but that's not controversial. It's also not controversial to, to say that he lived and died. Right? Every single one of us here in this room is alive at this moment. But there's also going to come a time where every single one of us here in this room is no longer alive. So it's not controversial to say that Jesus lived and died. What is controversial about my explanation of Christ, and as you speak about Jesus to your friends, neighbors, and co-workers, what will be controversial is if you say that Jesus is the Son of God who was sent to save sinners. Because now you're making an indictment against them and you're making a very clear statement about who Jesus is. And again, if we say that Jesus is God, that demands a response. We can't just leave it there. So why should we conclude that Jesus is God? What I want to, I guess, share with you this morning uh, is a very helpful acronym uh, that would explain why, why should we accept Jesus as the Son of God. And this acronym uh, is HANDS. H-A-N-D-S. Uh, and it comes uh, from a, a book about Jesus uh, by two authors, Robert M. Bowman, Jr. Uh, and J. Uh, Ed Komosevsky. And each of these uh, statements in this acronym is going to be worthy of an entire sermon or a sermon series. But... This is going to be a sprint through them, okay? Uh, we're going to walk through these five uh, statements about Christ and why they explain that and defend that Jesus is God. You can say this, that, that Jesus shares the honor, attributes, names, deeds, and seat of God. And that's how we know that Jesus is God. You know, let's look at each one of these uh, Individually, uh, that Jesus shares the honor due to God. And now, now, honor and glory are ascribed to Jesus in the exact same way that they are ascribed to God. And if, you, if you keep your finger here, oh, you don't have to keep your finger there. We'll, we'll, we'll jump over to Revelation chapter 4. What we see uh, in the throne room of heaven. is uh, that, that Christ is praised as the Creator. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then if you jump over to chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. And, that, and even that is a loaded phrase because a new song in the Old Testament was always a song directed towards God. But here, in heaven, Jesus is being sung to and sung about. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Verse 11 or verse 12, jumping down one verse, is Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Again, the, the honor and glory due to God is also given to Christ. Additionally, worship and prayer are directed towards Jesus. Uh, as we've been reading through uh, Mark's gospel, have you noticed that people run up to Jesus and bow down before him and beg and implore him? This is often the term that is used in the ESV, but the idea is that that same word is used to uh, speak of prayer. That people are running up to Jesus, bowing down and praying to him. Asking for healing, asking for, for blessing, asking for his intervention. It's an amazing thing. You don't do that to someone who is not God. 
Additionally, Ephesians chapter 5, we are commanded to sing hymns to Jesus. And then even as we saw uh, in John chapter 20, verse 31, the whole purpose of John's writing is to get us to believe that Jesus should be the object of our faith and worship. But we are commanded to only worship God. So why would the Apostle John try to get us to worship someone other than God? Jesus shares the honor due to God. Then he also shares the attributes of God. Jesus possesses all of the attributes of God. Uh, but then you, you might say, well, well, we share some of the attributes of God. Uh, and I would say, yes, every single one of us is created in the image of God. So there are some attributes of God known as his communicable attributes, those attributes that can be communicated uh, to and by others. Uh, the communicable attributes of God, we can mirror, we can also demonstrate. What are those? Well, love, mercy, righteousness, goodness, kindness. Well, we can demonstrate those, and we are indeed commanded to demonstrate those uh, as those created in His image. But uh, these qualities, we have them imperfectly. God has them perfectly. You can speak of God's attributes also as His perfections. We can demonstrate kindness, but God is perfectly kind. We can demonstrate love, but God is perfect love. Uh, understanding that. But then there are also incommunicable attributes, meaning that there are attributes of God that we as humans cannot copy. Right? And what this means is God is uh, self-existent. Nobody created God. God has existed for all of time. He is eternal. God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and sovereign. And all of those things are beyond us. But again, as we've been reading in the Gospel of Mark this month, have you noticed that these incommunicable attributes, these uh, powers and abilities, these characteristics that should be only true of God are also spoken of as being true about Jesus? Uh, As we have read in the Gospel of Mark, we have seen that, that Jesus has authority over demons. Mark chapter 1. We have seen... That Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. You know what's amazing in Mark chapter 1? When Jesus interacts with the leper? Usually, if, if any normal person interacts with a leper, what happens? They would become unclean. Uh, and then we have to go and, and do exactly as that leper did. It's kind of the, the COVID before COVID, right? It's contact tracing. Oh, if you touch the leper, oh, we got to do this. We got to quarantine. Well, all of those things. But when Jesus interacts with the leper, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. How does that happen? Jesus cleanses and purifies sickness and disease. He's not tainted by it. Additionally, we see in in Mark chapter 2, the the story of the the paralytic, uh, where his friends are like, we have to get this guy to Jesus. We're willing to, to break through the roof. And lower our friend down. Because our friend needs to, to meet Jesus. Jesus can help him. And Jesus doesn't immediately heal the man. What does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. And then the, the Jewish leaders are like, wait. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus proves that he can forgive sins he can do that invisible act because if you just say your sins are forgiven nothing changes externally but jesus said that first and then says well i'm going to say that first so that way when i do this visible miracle when i tell this man also to get up and walk then you know that the invisible has also taken place showing his power over sin and sickness power to forgive sin and in that same dialogue in that same story mark chapter 2 verse 8 it also says this and immediately jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them why do you question these things in your hearts jesus is said to be omniscient saw the same thing in john chapter 2 very clearly it says nobody needs to tell jesus what's taking place in the human heart because he already knows. That's omniscience. You and I don't know those things. It's amazing. Additionally, what we see in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples 
and, and he is asleep, and a storm comes upon the sea. And the disciples are terrified. So it's, it's a big storm, and they run to Christ and say, Why are you not freaking out? And what does he say to the winds and the waves? Peace, be still. And immediately, the winds and the waves, the storm and the sea, are put to silence. And, and I love the disciples' response. That's what it says in, in chapter 4, verse 41. It says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were starting to connect the dots, right? And again, what's amazing, the, the storm is gone, and then what, how are they feeling? They're still terrified, right? Because God in the boat with you is more terrifying than the storm outside of the boat. They, they are making conclusions about who Jesus is. What we see in Mark's gospel is his power and authority over everything. Additionally, Jesus shares the names of God. Names and titles that are reserved for God alone are given and ascribed to Jesus. Names like Lord, Savior, God, Shepherd, and Holy One. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God the Father is saying. He doesn't share glory with anyone. But then Isaiah 43, 11 says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other Savior. And yet in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, as the, the apostles are giving an account to uh, the Jewish leaders, they say there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only Savior, but speaking in that language means that Jesus has to be God. Because God proclaims that He is the only Savior. This is going to be a running theme throughout John's Gospel. We're going to see it a little bit later uh, in John chapter 8, uh, where there's going to be a, a long interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to say, look, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus takes on the divine name and says, this is what is uh, true. This is who I am. Jesus takes on the names of God. Jesus also shares in the deeds that God does. The great works of God are attributed to Christ. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. Colossians chapter 1. He has power over nature, which we saw in him calming the storm. John chapter 9. He has the the power and the ability to heal the man who was born blind. It says that's never happened in all of human history. This must be something unique. Jesus is the definer of truth. John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is also the final judge. And he's the final judge because of that, that fifth letter in the acronym, that Jesus shares the seat of God's throne. There was a, a, a little boy who was visiting his, his grandmother for the weekend, uh, and his, his grandmother decided to, to take him to the park, uh, and it had uh, snowed, uh, or what's the, I guess the, the past tense of that, it had snowed, snowed is not, snowed is not a word. Uh, it snowed the, the day before, uh, and so everything is white and covered uh, in just a picturesque scene. Uh, and the, the grandmother uh, speaks to her, her grandson and says, look at this. It looks like an artist painted this. Uh, and she says, it, God painted this for you. Uh, and the, the grandson uh, replies, says, yeah, and he did it left-handed. And, and she's like, what? So why, why do you say that? And he's like, well, Jesus sits at God's right hand. Uh, so, so it's very easy to, to misunderstand what that means, right? He says, good things. Well, if Jesus is at his right hand, he's got to use his left hand to, to do all this painting. Uh, and uh, the, the idea that, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God speaks of the power and authority given to Jesus. Uh, but it's also... What, what Scripture describes is that Jesus uh, shares the throne with God. If you, if you jump, you may still be in Revelation. If you look at uh, the end of Revelation, 
Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. What we see there, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from, and make note of this, the throne of God and of the Lamb. So who does the throne belong to? God and the Lamb. And then through the middle of the street it flows, uh, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Okay, so, so that's what we, what we see, is that uh, Scripture assigns to Jesus the honor, attributes, names, deeds, and seat of God himself. But you might be asking, what does all of this prove? You're like, Thomas, that was a lot of information. Now, what do I do with it? Well, think, think of this. Uh, if someone came up to you and said, I'm the president of the United States, how would you verify that? Right? You, you may ask for certain evidence. Right? You go and observe this person, and you may see... Military leaders salute this man. But does that prove that he's the president? No, it just means he's a higher rank than they. Uh, You may see uh, someone referring to this man with the title of president, but does that mean that he's the president of the United States? No, he could be the president of Albertsons or Boise State. He could could be a president of some other organization. So simply calling him president doesn't necessarily mean he's the president of the United States. Well, what if you saw him signing bills into laws? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean he's the president, because what do governors do? They also sign bills into laws, right? You may even see that he lives in the White House. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he is the president, because there's other people that stay at the White House. But what if you saw all of these things together? Right? What, what if you see... That at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, that this man is saluted by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. All right, that, that he walks into the Oval Office and sits down behind the desk. And then at that desk, he signs a bill from Congress into law. And everyone is referring to him as Mr. President. Right? Well, when, you, when you put all of those things together that individually may not necessarily confirm that he is the president of the united states but when all of those things come together it is undoubtedly true that he is who he says he is and the same thing is true here regarding the person of jesus when when all of creation including the most glorious angels in heaven are called to worship him that means something when he has existed forever He has no beginning and he has no end. When he is the creator and sustainer of all things, when he responds to all of the names of God, when he lives in God's home, heaven, and when he sits in God's chair, the throne, all of those mean something. Right? All of that taken in context means who else can this person be except God? And the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is God. I love what uh, those two authors of the, the book that I mentioned, uh, Bowman and Komoshevsky, say they, they write this, that honoring Jesus in these ways would be odd and blasphemous if he were merely a man. No matter how great a human being he might have been, no matter how wise or kind or influential he, we consider him to have been, it would be wrong to honor Jesus as God if he were fundamentally and in essence no more than a man. And that's what we, we have to understand. Ultimately, do you know what Christ was executed for? Why was he crucified? Well, the Jewish leaders found him guilty of blasphemy. They're saying, hey, you are claiming to be God and you're not. They understood everything that Jesus was claiming. But they came to the wrong conclusion. And this question, 
Who is Jesus? Yeah. The most important question in human history. As we've seen this morning, it was the, the quiet debate uh, at this feast in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But, but over the, the span of time and the, the distance of uh, geography, that question has not lost any of its importance. It grows ever more important each and every day. And it is the inescapable question for every single one of us. And procrastination and avoidance don't make it disappear. But this question is also very clearly and powerfully answered in Scripture. Again, this question is worthy of our thoughts, our time, our energy. And I pray, if you're here this morning and and you're wrestling with this, again, that's good. Again, I encourage parents, don't be discouraged uh, if your, your student is wrestling with spiritual concepts and spiritual truth. Those are good things. Be concerned when there's no interest. Be concerned when they have uh, no desire to even think about who Jesus is. But if they are thinking and wrestling with those things, encourage them, talk to them. And if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with this uh, inescapable question, this most important question of who Jesus is, I hope and I pray that you would consider all of his claims and that you would look to him in faith. That you would no longer trust in yourself, but that you would trust in Him. Again, we are all commanded to turn from our sin and turn to Him in faith. And if you've already done that, then I pray that that this morning would be a source of encouragement for you. That you would reflect deeply upon that acronym this week. That as we celebrate Christmas on Friday... As we come together on Thursday evening to, to sing and, and worship, pray that you would have reflected upon all of these truths about Christ and begin to live them out. Do you give honor to Christ as God? Do you view Him in all of His attributes and all of His power and wonder and glory? Do you ascribe to Him the names of God? Do you worship Him for all of the deeds that He has performed? And do you understand that he sits in the judgment seat and that we will all stand before him, be judged, be recompensed for our deeds in this life? So my hope and my prayer is that you would reflect upon all of the claims of Christ, whether you have believed or not believed, because it is worthy and demanding of your attention. Even as we have sung to him and about him this morning, may our thoughts reach ever higher this week of all weeks. May we worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray.